0: bible great stuff fantastic um you may want to have the bible open if you have it on your apps or whatever uh, be useful to look at Um, partly because it was meant to be three chapters and that's a bit long to read in one go um so we may be dipping in and out of different uh different parts over 41 42 and 43. We have chosen this title for this series, Your God is Too Small, and uh, there is method in our madness. There's a reason behind that, Um, but I've got a little little disclaimer at the very start of this sermon, okay? Are you ready for it? Not convinced. (laughs) Right, okay, so this is the disclaimer. If, by the end of this sermon, you understand what I'm talking about... I have failed. Talk about a disclaimer, eh? If you can understand what I'm talking about by the end of the sermon, I failed in my job this morning, all right? That's my disclaimer. And since it's Father's Day, I was wondering if you would indulge me, would you? Thanks. Can I read you a story? It's a story I, I, I've read um, my children, maybe, maybe some of you have read yours. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. That's not my train. All right, here we go. That's not my train. Its windows are too shiny. Someone knows the words. That's really scary. (laughs) I think I've got the author here. That's not my train. Its funnel is too rusty. That's not my train. Its side is too bumpy. Oh, really scary. You're scaring me now. That's not my train. Its roof is too rough. That's my train. Its engine is so glossy. The end. Okay. I told you, if you understand what I'm talking about today, I have failed. Anyway, moving on. The reason is because your God is too small. One of my favorite writers from church history, um, I'll just get on to this. Okay, that's not my tractor, that's the other version. Okay, is a guy called Augustine. This is an older version of the PowerPoint, so it may go wrong, I promise you. Um, Augustine, massive mind, really, really influential on Christian thought, said this in a number of places. God, if you understand him, it's not God. If you can get your head around God, then it's not God you're thinking about. Hence the disclaimer. If you can understand what we're talking about today, at the end of the day, I've failed. If you can understand God, it's not God. With that in mind, let's have a look at context. Your God is too small. We, this is the area that we have been looking about uh, Jerusalem's over I think it right. Jerusalem's over here. And this is the whole kind of <clears throat> ancient Near East. And we're, this is the, the scene of what's going on. So well, Lisa's touched on this about the structure of Isaiah and how it's been put together. Um, and just a, a bit of a recap <clears throat> about this important thing is that between Isaiah 39 and Isaiah 40 and beyond, there's historically 200 years in context. Now, Some people, for some people, that suggests that there are more than one Isaiah. It could have been uh, someone who adopted his name. It could have been the school of Isaiah. It could have been his son, grandson, whatever. It's not about when this was written, but about who it was written to. Because prophecy is not about predicting next week's lottery numbers. Prophecy is about God's perspective on any given situation. That's prophecy. Prophecy. It does involve some manner of prediction of the future, but it's not solely that. So what has happened in these 200 years contextually from whenever Isaiah in chapter 39 is talking to a king called Hezekiah, and what's been happening is the Assyrian superpower, the bully boys from Assyria, they've wiped out the northern people of Israel and they're threatening with a guy called Sennacherib, threatening Jerusalem. And Isaiah talks to Hezekiah and says, wise up, follow God. And he goes, all right then. That's paraphrased from the Hebrew. Um, and he obeys him. And then strangely, miraculously, Sennacherib's army gets sick and go away. It's, it's recorded on their, uh, their documents as well that they were having a big fight and then they went away. That's all, without taking the city. But what happened after that? Well, there was a whole run of kings after Hezekiah. Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jehoahaz, 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 and Zedekiah. Okay? Now, quite a few of these were really bad. In fact, Manasseh is described as being one of the most evil kings in Judah's history. And evil because they took the people from worshiping solely Yahweh, worshiping God, to not other gods, but to Yahweh plus. They were allowing others to influence. They started worshiping idols. And we saw a few of those pictures last week. Up to the point where prophets are saying, please stop doing this because disaster's on the horizon. They didn't believe it. Hezekiah, am I coming through all right? Keeps going in and out. It's back again, is it? Fantastic. Okay, so Hezekiah, whenever the Assyrians go, he celebrates by inviting the Babylonians to come and have a look at his treasury. And they come along, and he says, look at all my treasure. And they go, that's really great. And so they go back to Babylon and say, he's got loads of treasure. Let's go get it. So the Babylonians then decide to come, and they take Jerusalem. And here's the big date: 586 B.C. Jerusalem falls, and people are dragged off into exile, hundreds of miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And we've got lots of stories about that's where Daniel happens. All those stories. This. I need batteries. Okay. Hello. It's working at the moment. Okay. So this is when Jerusalem falls. People are dragged off hundreds of miles away from home. Their home is destroyed. Their temple is destroyed. All the promises that God has given them about the nation that they're going to be are completely in shatters. Their promises, their hopes, they have no purpose. They're lacking identity. And as well as all this desolation, there's a bunch of happy, clappy charismatics who are saying it's going to be all right in the end so it's really winding them up they're not in a great place at this time empire israel and judah feel really tiny they're a tiny nation their city their people their god has been defeated and that's... I'll I'll do this is that okay so that's a, the message to judah and to the surrounding nations in the light of all this, is your God is too small. And the people of Judah who are in Babylon, they've got three questions in exile that they're asking. And they're asking this, why are we here? What's going on? And who's going to sort it out? Why are we here? How did we get here? What's going on in the present reality? And where or who's going to sort it out? So we've done a little bit of historical context. Now are you ready to do a little bit of theology with a microphone that works? Okay, a little bit of theology. Um, It's interesting, theology, because actually, if we take Augustine's uh, phrase seriously, theology is futile. Because the more you think about God, the more you're not going to get it right. But anyway, we'll we'll go on to this. Here's a bit of a timeline. And as I said, by the end of this, I hope, hopefully, you'll not understand it, okay? Here's God, and here is creation at one end, where he begins with everything, that there be light, everything begins, and then at the other end of time and space is completion. We have it in Genesis, the creation, we have Revelation, which tells us all about the completion, where God finishes everything. What we don't get our heads around is the fact that God is beyond that, that he is seeing all these things in an instant. So here is us, okay, approximately 2018. Give yourself a wave. I can't believe you did that. <laughs> okay, so there's us in 2018, and there, and there we have the people in Isaiah's time as well, waving at you. Do you want to wave back at them? Can't believe you did it again. Okay. And this picture shows that God is seeing everything in an instant to God the past the present and the future are instantaneous we're in the middle somewhere we're on this train from creation to completion but God can see the entirety of it in an instant can you get your heads around that if someone said yes please tell me how because I have no idea You understand the picture. That's all right, but how can God be outside of everything, but yet, because He's God? Okay, that's the answer. (laughs) I love heckles. Have a look at this. I've got we've got some friends who live in Australia, and at a certain time we could be on the phone, and we are both. Even though one's at one day and I'm in another day, we are both experiencing the heat and light of the same sun. Or more romantic, you know that thing about when lovers are separated, one's in Paris, the other's in San Francisco, and they're both on their phone and they go, we're looking at the same moon. (laughs) So one person is looking up and seeing the moon, and then thousands of miles away, this person's looking at, at the same moon. But from the moon, you can see both of them. Now, you magnify that God many times away. God's got really good eyesight. He can see everything in an instant. Not just space, but creation and completion in the same instant. Our God is too small if we think we can understand that. It's about these two words, about imminence and transcendence. In the same moment... God is outside of creation. He's beyond space and time and cosmos and everything that Stephen Hawking talked about. And yet at exactly the same time, he's ever so close and ever so present. Imminent and transcendent at the same time. And these are opposites, but God is both of them. Because, as Vicky said, he's God. <laughs> Cheat. Come back to Isaiah 41 and 43. And the battle that there is highlighted in these chapters. In fact, it's a battle that is highlighted throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. No, it's a battle that's highlighted through the entirety of Scripture and the age of the cosmos. It's GVG God versus the gods. Yahweh versus the idols, because that is what the battle has been from the moment someone munched down on an apple in the middle of a garden. Is, is God God, or is something else your inferior God? It's been the battle that's been waging for centuries upon millennia, and that's what this passage and these verses are all about. God versus the idols, the perpetual fight, the perpetual conflict. On a spiritual level, there are spiritual entities that are in opposition to God. Call them demons, evil spirits, powers, principalities, whatever. There is a force, a a force which is in opposition to God. They have been worshipped and revered as gods and idols. It is not a fair fight, by the way. But not just on that spiritual level, on a personal level, we make our own gods, our own idols, don't we? It could be our success. It could be our money. It could be sex. It could be um, our dress sense. It could be anything that is the thing that takes the place of Almighty God. And I love it in, um, if we have a look, it's weird being tied down to a microphone, isn't it? I love it in Isaiah 41, God gets smart. Okay? Okay? Verse 21, God says, all right then, gods, go ahead, make my day. It's a bit like when Elijah is on Mount Carmel, and uh, Elijah's mocking the gods of Baal, saying, come on, send your fire. Oh, he's asleep, is he? Shout louder. This is the challenge that God is laying down to the other gods. You think your god's okay? Show up, face up. He says, bring your idols to tell us what's going to happen. Tell us about the former things. Tell us so we may consider them. These are seismic events that are happening to the nations. Israel, to uh, Syria, to Babylon, the rise of Persia. And people are scared. They're insecure. And we read earlier in in chapter 41, it says, The islands have seen it, and they fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach each other, encourage each other, and they go back to rebuilding and repairing their idols. Because that's the only thing they can rely on. They see a force that's coming called, called Persia, and a guy called Cyrus, And the only thing they can rely on are the gods that they've built. And so they nail them down so they don't fall over. They hammer some more gold on them to make them look pretty. That's going back to their gods. That's their only recourse. Self-reliance. Relying on the idols. And God says, go on then. Explain the past. Make sense of what's going on right now. Tell me what's going to happen in the future. And those are really similar to the three questions that Israel were asking. And these are three really significant questions. Who's behind all this? Where we've got to? How did we get here? Who's behind it all? Who's the one to make sense of all of this, this present reality we're in? And who's going to sort it out? These are three questions with one answer. And the one answer is this. I am. I am. Who's behind the situation? Who's the one to make sense of it? Who's in charge? Who's the one that's going to sort it out? Yahweh says, I am. If you remember, Moses on uh, on Mount Sinai is asking God his name, and God says, my name is Yahweh. My name is I am. If you understand a little bit of the background, that word actually has the connotation of I will be who I will be. I am who I am. I was who I always have been. It's about past, present, future. It's God who doesn't have a past, present, and future. He only has a present tense. I am. And so he says, I can explain your past. I can make sense of your present. And I can give you a hope for the future. So in these passages, in Isaiah 42, this is where we'll dip into 42 and the 43, he explains a few things. In Isaiah 42, 18 to 25, he says this, he explains to Israel why they're in the situation they're in, to Judah, sorry. Hear you, deaf, look you blind. Who is blind but my servant? You've seen many things, but you've paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you don't hear. It pleased the Lord to make his law great and glorious, but you've ended up being a plundered people, looted in traps and pits. No one around to rescue you, with no one to say, send them back. God had called Israel. He'd given them a way to live, the law. He said, this is the best way to live in this world. This is how it works. He showed them wonders upon wonders, and yet they still rebelled against him. And he warned and warned and warned. We've got this picture of Old Testament God who's the angry one, and New Testament God who's the nice one and cuddly. But actually, that's nonsense. The God of the Old Testament is Yahweh, past, present, future. And he's the one who says over hundreds of years, I'm warning you, don't do this. You're going to end up in trouble. You're going to end up in real difficulties if you keep on following these other gods. They play by different rules, you're going to get hurt. And after loads and loads of warnings, eventually his patience wears out with Israel, and so Assyria comes and wipes them off. His patience runs out on Babylon and so Babylon, sorry, on, on Jerusalem. And so Babylon comes and takes them off. But it doesn't leave it there. He says, "You were punished for rebelling against me. It doesn't sound very nice. It doesn't sound like a very nice God, does it? He says, "You live this way, you're going to end up like the people that you want to model." Yahweh or the idols. Because sin has its consequences. Sin is rebellion against God. It has knock-on effects. And it's a sign of a good parent, isn't it? A sign of a good parent who says, if you keep doing that, you're going to get hurt. You're going to have a punishment. I don't want you to be hurt, so stop doing it. If a good parent parent doesn't follow through with those warnings, then the child doesn't know anything about danger. So stop sticking your, ha- your hand or your head in the oven. You'll get burnt. No, I want to keep on doing it. Don't do it. You'll get burnt. Oh, look, I got burnt. You see? Don't do drugs. Why not? They're bad for you, but they make me feel good. It doesn't matter. They're ultimately bad for you. Now I'm still going to do it. Well, you're going to end up knowing that they're bad for you. And how many broken lives have been because of drink, because of alcohol, because of pornography, because of whatever these idols are that, we've run away from God. The pursuit of money, fame, the pursuit of happiness even. God says there are consequences and they'll look like punishments, but actually they're just the consequences of the choices you make. So as far as Judah's perception is concerned, they have been defeated and their God is weak. This is nothing of the sort. God is saying, I've not been defeated. I am behind all this. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of my strength. It's a sign of my my bigness. Sometimes, in fact, many times it takes a crisis, doesn't it, or a trial or a hard time for us to realize how dependent we need to be on God. It's not that God manufactures situations just to teach us a lesson. Here, this will show you, but the fact that he uses our mistakes to actually prompt us to realize when we rely on ourselves, things go wrong. So he's made sense of the past. He explains why they're there. It's because of disobedience, even though he warned them over centuries. He makes sense of the present. In Babylon, under the rule of an empire, yet they're surrounded by many other threatening empires. There's a threat of another one rising up from, from the south and from the east, from the north, called Persia. A guy called Cyrus is threatening. And do you know what it's like when there's a, there's a general election and one party gets replaced by another one? And you know that for years you've been following one set of reports about what this government wants to do. And then another one comes and everything's changed. That's nothing compared to these regime changes. Where the capital city has moved to another part of the country, another part of the region. That there's a new king, there's a new language, there's a new army, there's a new set of gods. It's completely different. So everybody is insecure in Babylon at this time, not just the people of Judah. And there's another pagan empire on the horizon. And God says here, and behind this too. I'm going to call up someone from the east, someone from the north. This is Cyrus, the Persian. If you don't realize, Cyrus is the one who actually lets Judah return back to Jerusalem again. He is the Lord's hand in this. And in a sense, God says, you didn't see that coming, did you? Nobody saw that coming. And it's because we've got this kind of cartoon lifestyle. I think we still live on Saturday morning cartoons with goodies and baddies, don't we? we? People are good if we like them. They're bad if we don't. And so we have people like Trump. See, I you would get a reaction by saying that but you have Clinton, you've got North Korea and Russia, and you've got USA and UK, you've got May and you've got Corbyn, you've got Conservatives and you've got Labour, you've got Google, you've got Nestle, you've got oil producers, you've got hedge fund managers, you've got immigrants, you've got slave labourers, you've got drug dealers, you've got pharmaceutical companies, you've got all these different competing empires. And, and, and God can and God does use anyone to fulfill his purposes in this grand cleanup job he calls redemption we might think that someone's good but God uses absolutely anybody throughout scripture we see that and here he's using a pagan emperor called Cyrus and he says you didn't see that coming did you think about it if it wasn't for the Romans would we have had a cross if it wasn't for the Roman Empire, would we have had roads that meant the gospel was easily transferred? Here's some truths. God was not and is not on Trump's side. But he was not and is not on Clinton's side. God is not a conservative, and he is not a liberal. God is not uh, for SBC. He's not, he's not on SBC's side. He's not on the mosque's side. God is on his own side. The question is, are we on his? Not is he on ours. So let's stop trying to label God with our labels and say, he supports what I think. When God says, I can use whoever I want. I am behind everything. Now, that's a scary thought. And it's really hard to get our heads around, especially when it's about suffering and trials, and tribulations. God says, I'm still God throughout all of this. He's the God of the present. He is in charge regardless of our perceptions of who holds political or cultural power. Make no mistake, God's will will be done. His only response to us is this. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. And he finally says, I'll sort out the future. 41 and 22. He says, come on idols, tell me what's going to happen. Tell me what's going to happen in the future because clearly you must know because you're God's. You must know what's going on. And then he goes on in verse 28 and 29 and God says, there's no one who answers me. No one who can answer and tell me what's going to happen in the future because there's no one else there but me. No one foretold this. And then he says, But I told you, I've been telling you for years. I've been telling you since the dawn of Israel, follow my commands or these kind of things are going to happen. These are going to be the consequences. I told you through prophets, I warned you, if you keep on going down this path of messing around with other gods, you're going to end up in exile. I told you, you should have seen it coming. No one else did. And so to Judah, Cyrus the Persian, the man from the north and the east, will return. He will come and take Babylon, and he returns them to Jerusalem. And so God says, I will comfort my people. That's what this book is called, from chapter 40 onwards, the book of comfort. So God is ultimately behind everything. He says, I am God, like it or not, I'm in charge. A a very godly woman that I knew in church growing up once said to me, God is God, and he can do whatever he wants. That scared me a little bit. Maybe it scares you a little bit as well. Don't need that. Perhaps that concept is scary to you. That God is God. and He can do whatever he wants. It is scary. Until you read a whole pile of verses in these chapters. Chapter 41, 8 to 10. God says to his people. All this turmoil that's going around, do not fear. Why? Because I'm with you. He says in 17 to 20, he says the deserts are going to have life. I'm going to bring waters. I'm going to bring all these different types of trees that are going to grow in the desert. I'm going to do that. In 42, 1 to 7, he says, my servant, and we're going to explore who the servant is. It's the beginning of the four servant songs, which we'll explore over the next few weeks, I'm sure. But at the beginning, he says, my servant is going to be mindful of those who are really struggling. Those who feel like a candle that's just about to blow out or a broken reed. He's going to remember you and be mindful of you. Those who are struggling to hold on. In 41, 10 and 13 and 42, verse 6, he sings a Beatles song. And he sings to them, to Israel. Israel. I want to hold your hand, I want to hold your hand. This is the God of the universe who created everything, who can control the destiny of nations and he says, I want to hold your hand through this. And why? 43, 1 to 5. Turn to that please, because this is powerful stuff. Remembering this God we can't get our head around. This God who is all majestic and all powerful. He says this, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, who formed you, fear not because I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, not if, but when you pass through the waters, because it is going to be tough, I'll be with you. I'll be holding your hand. They'll not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? For I am the Holy Lord. I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel. And then verse 4, look at this. Why? Because you are precious and honored in my sight. You who have let me down again and again and again. Who's been in exile. Why am I doing all this? One of the most... Beautiful phrases in the entirety of Scripture because I love you. Majesty and tenderness, imperialness and intimacy. This place, this world we live in, is in a bit of a mess. Quite often has been over the centuries and millennia. God says, I'm in charge. We can't understand what's going on. We've got to trust that he knows what he's doing. And so we go back to this confusing diagram, yeah? What's all this about? God seeing everything at an instant. When he says, I'm doing a new thing, what is this new thing he's talking about? It culminates in the fact that Jesus comes among us. God says, I am with you, not just in spirit. He comes down, he physically holds people's hands on earth. I am am with you in the midst of this. So maybe you can get your head around a little bit of God being outside of time and seeing everything at once. But can you handle that and the fact that he is one of us at the same time? Because if you can, please write a book. You'll make a fortune. God, imminent and transcendent. These are the last couple of things I want to say. First of all, Your God is too small. If you've got an idol, if you're relying on that idol, if you're relying on on your political party that you support, if you're relying on your bank balance to get you through all this, that's fine. But God says your God is too small. How about this? Your God, with a big G, is too small. Because we try and get our majestic God and buttonhole him down to make him pocket-sized so we can handle him. And God says to Israel, he says to us, Your perception of me is far too small. You don't understand how I can control the past, the present, and the future, and still have free will at the same time? Yeah, I know. You don't get it. I do. Your God is too small. Your God is too small. And here's the new thing. Your God is going to be small. Here's another story for you. That's not my God. It's just made of stone. That's not my God. It's just made of metal. That's not my God. It's too much like me. That's not my God. It's never really enough. That's not my God. It doesn't actually like me. That's not my God. It's ruined my past That's not my God. It hurts me. That's not my God. It hurts others. That's not my God. It can't answer my questions. I am your God. I know your past. I hold history in my hand and nations on my fingertip. I understand the world. I know what will happen. I am With you. That is my God, and He loves me very much.